Happy Mother's Day, everybody. This is a really special Mother's Day for me because my, it's also my mom's birthday right now. And so we're going to celebrate afterwards. Dad, if you're watching, hit pause because this intro is all about mom. So here's what's happened. I have not let my mom know that I'm using a story about her. So we'll see if I go back to my office and a lunch invite has been totally revoked. We've had, uh, my mom, some of you might know her, she comes occasionally, maybe you've seen her around a little bit, but she's probably impacted well over a hundred of you, whether you realize it or not. My mom used to be the kitchen lady at Beulah Alliance Church. She was there for over 15 years. And so if you went to a funeral there, or a seminar, or a conference, or maybe seniors lunch, my mom cooked for you. But that's not why I'm thinking about my mom. Nine days ago, I took my son on a field trip. My wife was scheduled to go, but one of her relatives passed away and she had an out-of-town funeral. And so I was voluntold, you will take Beckham on his field trip. I said, okay. And I looked back and I thought about it because I'm super mature. How do I not embarrass my son and help his friends think I'm cool? Go back to 1991. Little Davy is 10 years old, and we went on a field trip with my mom being one of the volunteers. I don't remember anything about the field trip, except it was terribly boring. And so here we are, me and a few of my little friends, and my mom says after lunch, hey, do you guys want to see something really cool? And we said, well, of course we do. And so my mom takes this little brown paper bag, Abby's there for you to see what happened, and she blew into it a couple of times, and then she took her hand and she smacked it. Abby, that was weak this time. And it made this huge pop. Two things immediately happened. One, my grade four teacher looked at her and said, surely that is unacceptable, which I thought was hilarious because normally I get in trouble. Now my mom is. Second thing, my friends looked at me and said, your mom is so awesome. And I said, I know. Earlier this week, my wife looked at me and she said, are you going to tell an intro and then say, that has nothing to do with the sermon this week? And I said, no, don't hurt my feelings. All of us get to go, our dad is totally awesome. Colton did a wonderful job of picking the songs today. We are looking at what does it mean to be a child of God and the privilege that we have of having a heavenly father who adopts us, who chooses us and says, my sons and daughters Please come home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the good news from 1 John. And while it's a gospel, or pardon me, an epistle that's hard to follow along at times, God, we thank you for what you're teaching us about how you are love and how you are light and how you are life and how much it is a privilege for us to call you Father. And today, as we talk about what it means to be children of God, may we be in awe of what you have in store for us in our future and also how it impacts us today. And so God, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would take my simple words and impact all of our hearts this day. We pray all these things in Jesus' holy name, amen. If you have your Bibles with you, I want you to open them up to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. If you're brand new to Ellerslie, there should be a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. Of course, whether you're in the room or watching online, you can download the app on the screen behind me to your phone or to your tablets as well. Um, 1 John's a little bit tough to find. So if you start in the book of Revelation and work backwards, you'll find it quickly. If you've hit Peter or Hebrews, you've gone a little bit too far. If you're brand new to church, big numbers are the chapter numbers, small numbers are the verse numbers. Now, 
you're flipping, a little bit of context as to what's taking place. John is around 90 years old. He is the last remaining apostle, the last remaining uh, man who was there one-on-one with Jesus. And he's writing to a number of house churches, probably about a dozen of them. And what's happened is he's helped these house churches begin, but now after he's left, these false teachers have come in and, and started teaching false doctrine that John is trying to correct. And so he is writing, helping us, as Joel talked about last week, understand who we are as followers of Jesus. Last week, Pastor Joel talked about the assurance that we have and the power of the Holy Spirit that's living within us. Today, we're going to dive a little bit deeper into that and the understanding of who we are as children of God. If you enjoy taking notes, I always preach from the English Standard Version, and the outline today begins with a purifying hope, verse 28 and 29. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So there's only going to be two parts of the outline today. We're going to go from 228 to 3 verse 3, and we're going to be looking ahead. From 3 verse 4 to 3 uh, verse 10, we're going to be looking at what does that mean right now? Now, if you have your Bibles in front of you, some of you follow along word for word, and you see the word abide. Others of you might have the New International Version or another translation that will say things like continue in him, remain in him. And John loves this idea. I don't know if I've used the word abide in common vernacular ever, but John says it over three dozen times. This is what it means. Stay with Jesus. And if you look at what he's doing here in 3 verse 9, he is encouraging that to take place. Now, for all of the parents, for all of the grandparents in the room, think about how often you actually say this yourselves. You go to um, a July 1st Canada Day celebration. You go to a big sporting event. You go to a really busy mall, or you're in a lobby that's super packed. And you say to your kids, stay close. Hold my hand. Don't let me go. In other words, don't run away. And that's the idea that John is trying to get across. You know your feelings. You know you don't want to lose your kid. You know you don't want them to run away. How many of us, I'm not asking for a show of hands, have lost your kid at a mall or at Disneyland or at something, and you start freaking out? But there's another side. When we hear that news ourselves, it's not this passive interaction that takes place. It's an active event. It's something that your child has to choose to hold your hand. Your child has to choose to stay close to you. And it's the same way for me and you right now. We choose to come to church. We choose to watch online. We choose to read our Bible. We choose close godly friends that will help us grow in our faith. And then something beautiful happens. You'll notice that the apostle says, this is your purifying hope. This is the confidence that you have, because when Jesus returns, it is going to be amazing. You'll have confidence because you know that because you've trusted in Jesus' righteousness, his righteousness will be in you, and you will get to spend eternity with him. We look not at John's letter, but at John's gospel, and he says this in chapter 1. To all who did receive him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I don't know about you, but when I was young, I would ask Jesus into my heart on a regular basis. Oh, sinned again. Jesus, come into my life. 
One of my friends uh, recently posted on Facebook, we grew up at, at Beulah together, and um, our previous pastor uh, recently passed away. And so my friend was telling the story on Facebook about how our previous pastor would regularly do altar calls. And my friend went up five weeks in a row saying, Jesus, I want you in my life. Jesus, I want you in my life. And uh, the pastor looked at him and said, you don't need to come every single week. Take another look on the verse on the screen. Have you received Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus came to earth, died for your sins, rose from the grave, and is one day coming back? You're saved. We have the privilege of knowing that we are sons and daughters of a great and glorious king. We continue to grow in our knowledge of God. We continue to grow in our likeness of God. When Jesus returns or calls us home, we have this purifying hope that something great is in store for us. Moving on to chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him, beloved. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he truly is. And everyone who hopes in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. One of the challenges in talking about God as a heavenly father, one of the challenges about praying or teaching on Mother's Day, is that we recognize that not all of us have had wonderful earthly parents. And so we can talk about the love of the father, and some of us might go, but my dad really wasn't that loving. And there's this challenge that we have when we come to days like this. In the first century, this was very much the case. In the first century, the Greco-Roman world, there was no way to abort your kids. And so as someone would be born and the dad might not want it. And for some of you who are sensitive or emotional today, you might want to cover your ears at this next part. Dad would take a child who is unwanted, walk into the forest, and leave the baby there. That the elements and the animals would do what nature will do, and that baby is well taken care of. And then he would walk home, wipe his hands, and carry on with his life. And so there's this radical idea in the first century that here's the heavenly father who says, I'm going to adopt anybody who comes to me. It is this revolutionary concept to be told you are chosen, you are predestined, you have been adopted to become part of the, um, of the family of God. We read in Ephesians chapter 1, God chose us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. He predestined us, he adopted us as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure in his will to the praise of his glorious grace. This is the purifying hope we have. And not only are we encouraged that God has chosen us, that he's predestined us, that he's adopted us as his children, but look, take another look at chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But when we appear, we know we shall be like him. And so we have this difficult time that we might be going through right now, but we think something better is coming. That morally, we will be without sin. Intellectually, without any falsehood or error. Physically, without weakness or imperfections. Relationally, we won't annoy one another anymore. Doesn't that sound amazing? I don't know about you, but I'm looking at our two provincial candidates. I don't even know when the election is. End of May, I'm, I think. And I look at one party and I look at the other party and I think, I don't want to vote for either of you. <laughs> one day, we will be with Jesus face to face and every knee will bow and every tongue confess, this 
is the glorious king of the world. No sin. Think about that. You go to a banquet and you like everybody in the room. You have neighbors that you actually get along with. Everybody will be like me, a perfect driver. And you'll get to see what that's like. I'm 42. My next set of glasses are going to be bifocals because my arms aren't long enough to read anymore. My body is falling apart. I live with constant black back pain. My left foot looks like something out of a horror movie right now. Can you imagine what heaven's going to be like when our life is totally perfect? Take another look at verse 2 and verse 3. We shall be like him. It will be our purifying hope. My friends, being a part of the family of God, it means something. It doesn't just mean we show up at church on Sunday morning and maybe serve a little bit here and be a part of a group there. It means something. It means that we love one another. It means that we carry one another's burdens. It means that we pray for one another. It means that we laugh with those who laugh and we weep with those who weep. It means that whether we're at work, at home, or at play, we are the ambassadors of God, helping other people to see how great and awesome our king is. But John isn't only focused on the future. He understands that being children of God, impacts us today, and that's the second part of our outline. What does it mean to practice righteousness? Picking up in verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning and practices lawlessness, sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. I think sometimes we make sin out to be a trivial matter. And we just think, well, you know what? We don't murder people. We don't steal. I haven't raped anybody. I'm not part of some sex traffic. So my sin, it's really not that big of a deal. But sin is a big deal. I was reading this past week, my personal time with God, in Numbers chapter 15. And in Numbers chapter 15, a couple of people saw somebody who was doing something wrong, and they brought him to Moses and Moses' brother Aaron, and he was put in jail. And you hear that, and you go, man, what did he do? Did he steal somebody's bull? Did he murder somebody? Was he he caught having sex with someone who isn't his wife? What did he do? None of those things. Do you know what he did? On the Sabbath day, he picked up some sticks and he was put in prison. And Moses says, I will contact God and I will ask God, what should we do with this? And look what God says. This is Numbers 15. The Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. We look at sin and we think, oh, it's just some trivial matter. It's not a big deal. And even inside the church, we've kind of developed, well, here are the respectable sins. It's not really wrong to gossip or talk a little bit behind somebody's back. Last night, my wife and I were uh, watching a show before going to bed, and someone was meddling in someone else's relationship and something that didn't really have to do with him. That's okay. It's not really a big deal if we're a poor steward of our time, our talents, our treasures. Uh, We'll get around to it eventually. But think about the implication of those sins. When somebody gossips to you, what do you think about? I'll tell you what I think about. What do you say about me when I'm not around? 
when you speak poorly of another church, you know what goes through my mind? What do you say about Ellerslie when there's no pastors around? What about where you work? And you think, man, I don't really like my job. I don't really like volunteering in this organization or this board really isn't for me. So I'm not going to put in my best effort. I'm not going to work that hard. I'm not going to put in any extra hours. I'll hand in my expense sheet when I get around to it. But then your boss looks at you and there's an opportunity for a promotion or there's some raises going around. Or maybe there's this really big project that you would love to be a part of, but you don't get that opportunity because your boss looks at you and thinks that person doesn't work that hard. And so these respectable sins actually have real ramifications. John wants us to understand sin isn't trivial. It's a big deal. And if you look at verse 5, we know that Jesus appeared to take away these sins, and in him there is no sin. And so we see this big idea coming out all throughout the New Testament. We see it in the Gospels. We see it in Acts. We see it in the Paul's writings. We see it in the general writings. Sin's a big deal. And Jesus came to take away those sins. Now, I could rattle off a couple verses quickly, but I want to focus on one because it has the big word that we're looking at a number of times today. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Think about what it means to be a child of God. Think about the invitation that we have, that God the Father says to God the Son, I want you to go on a rescue mission. I want you to go down to earth. You will be fully God. I'm not going to take away your divinity, but you're going to take on humanity. You are going to live a holy and perfect life. You are going to die a gruesome and terrible death. Then I'm going to raise you from the grave after you've conquered sin and death. And people who believe in you will have life forever. And you go, that looks amazing. And so here's what Jesus does. When he is standing, when he is on that cross, all of the sin of all of humanity is placed upon him. And he cries out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God takes this holy, blameless, spotless, sacrificial lamb and puts the sins of humanity upon him. And over here, we as humanity have this incredible privilege that our sin has been taken on by that spotless lamb of God so that his righteousness might be given to us. And so when Jesus looks at us, when God the Father looks at us, he sees someone clothed in sparkling white. What an invitation it is to be a part of that. And it's the reason that God takes sin so seriously. For the false teachers walking around, they're saying, you know what, sin isn't that big of a deal. But John is writing to the people saying, sin is a big deal. And what's harder to say? That sin's not a big deal and just to ignore it or to say sin is a big deal and to die on the cross and rise from the dead three days later because of it. This is the God of love. I know we've already read verses 7 and 8, but I want to pick up there all over again and read to the end of verse 10. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. I remember reading this as a young adult and going, is John expecting perfection? Like I'm trying to live a godly life, but I'm not perfect. 
So to put your mind at ease, if you're like me and thinking the exact same thing, that is not what John is trying to do here. John is saying that the practice of sin, the habit of sin, continuing in that same sin over and over again, that shows that you are not of God. Think about the one-time offenses that happen here and there. You had a little bit to drink that one time, or, or you had a stressful week and you said something you wish you wouldn't have said, or maybe you fudged on your taxes. He goes, we know that people sin occasionally. It's that practice, it's that ongoing sin that he says, that does not show that you are a child of God. I regularly meet with people who are struggling with pornography. One of the first things I do when I meet with somebody who's struggling is I say, okay, well, tell me how often you're doing it and how you're doing it. So a number of years ago, I was meeting with one of our young adults, um, and he said, Dave, probably two to three times a day, and I look on my phone, uh, usually first thing in the morning and right before I go to bed. I said, okay, really simple. Let's take your phone. Let's put a passcode on it. Let's give it to your roommate so that you can't look at it again. And then let's see how much that impacts you, how much you're going to change over the next little while. And so two weeks later, he comes back to my house and he's downcast and he's frustrated. And he said, Dave, I looked at pornography five times this past week. And I said, okay, just to be clear, five times a day or five times total? And he goes, five, five times total. And I looked at my friend and I said, that's amazing. And don't take this clip and be like, pastor's pro-pornography. I'm not, just so we're clear. But I said, you went from looking at pornography 20 times a week to five times a week in a span of two weeks. That's incredible growth. Imagine we stopped complaining almost overnight and still complained a little bit. Or maybe we have a foul mouth and we stopped um, swearing almost overnight. We would celebrate of the growth that's in our lives. Take another look at verse 9 and you'll see how this starts to come together. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. God's seed abides in you. So if you're a gardener and you plant a little bit of carrots, or you plant some potatoes or, or peas, you expect carrots or potatoes or peas to come up. If you plant an acorn, you expect a tree to come up. The seed of God is planted inside of you. Think about what that means. That means that the glory of God is growing inside of you, germinating, flourishing, becoming sparkingly beautiful so that you might become a child of God, showing the world around you what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. We are children of God. We don't belong to the world anymore. We have a purifying hope. We know something greater is coming. We practice righteousness because that's what it means to be a follower of God. And for the note takers in the room, if you write anything down, I encourage you to write this. Practicing righteousness isn't only about stopping doing bad things. It's about starting to do good things. Practicing righteousness isn't only about stopping doing bad things. It's also about starting to do good things. And for the theologians in the room, think about all the theology that is packed into this message. We have talked about justification. We have talked about imputation. We have talked about regeneration. We have talked about sanctification. John wants us to be completely restored and redeemed as children of God. So let's shift gears here a little bit. John wants his readers to understand the gravity of sin. But he also wants them to practice righteousness. What is one area of your life that you want to focus on? What is one area of your life that you want to focus on? So some of you are sitting right now beside um, your spouse, your partner, or your good friends. That's awesome. 
you might want to whisper it into their ear for the rest of you. Take out your phones. And don't look at the weather. It's 27 degrees and sunny. It's going to be beautiful. Don't make lunch reservations. You can't anyways. Oilers play at 8 o'clock. See, no other reason to look at your phone. Open the text messages and grab a good friend, maybe a family member, and answer the question, what area are you going to focus on? And you can say to your friend, I want you to hold me accountable to this. Because over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to work on blank. I have an addiction problem. I'm addicted to gambling. You guys notice how many gambling commercials are on during the Oilers games? Holy cow. I'm addicted to gambling. I'm addicted to pornography. I'm addicted to alcohol. Maybe it's something else entirely. I need to work on my words. I talk behind people's back way too much. I'm always complaining. I'm good at church, but when at work, I swear like a trucker. Maybe it's the exact opposite. You know what? My life is pretty good. But over the last nine months, we've been going through inescapable mission as a church, and I haven't talked to anybody about Jesus. And so if you have your phone in front of you, text your friend, nudge your partner, nudge your, um, text one of your friends and say, this is what I want to focus on. I'm going to take a coworker out for coffee this week. I'm going to start talking to people about Jesus. I'm going to invite someone over to my backyard and we're going to have dessert together. I'm going to start praying for somebody every single week and see how God changes my heart or change their heart. What is one area you want to focus on? And you might think to yourself, Dave, I don't know if I can do this. If you still have your Bibles or your phones open in front of you, think about this. Verse 5, Jesus came to take away our sins. Verse 8, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Verse 9, God's seed is planted inside of you to be transformed into his holiness, to be righteous for him, to be children of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for First John. Thank you for who John is and for how much he cares about these house churches and for 2,000 years later, how much it's impacting us. May we be a people who are continually looking to glorify you, that we would be on this inescapable mission as ambassadors of a great and glorious king, sons and daughters who are here to glorify you. And God, may we be people who walk away from sin and turn towards righteousness be a blessing to everyone we come in contact with. We pray these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.